Jesus, we honor you here tonight. We thank you for your powerful, powerful presence and for speaking to us through your word. I stand here ready to be used by you. Father, give us a word of life. CPR, resuscitate us tonight by your Holy Spirit. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we all pray. Amen. We've been walking through the book of John. And um, John is just one of those books that reads like a story, doesn't it? Because it's chronological. We get to see what a day in the life of Jesus looked like. We get to experience his miracles. We get to be like in the, in the crowd. We get to hear it and see it the same way that the disciples did and to see what Jesus did while he was on the earth. And so we've actually walked through one, two, three, four, and we have three more I am statements. Okay, miracles still happen if I get through these three tonight. But the most important thing is that we want to talk about who Jesus declared he was. He said, I am the bread of life. And he said this in context right after he fed the 5,000 plus. He's the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And he declared that right after the woman caught in, a, in the act of adultery who had been walking in darkness, but now he shone light and the light of life into her darkness. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. They, were, they worked so beautifully together because God, Jesus says, I'm not only a shepherd who takes good care of his sheep, but I'm a good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd and I'm the door. And we talked at length about how this is not just a bread of life or a light of the world or a door or any old good shepherd. He is the one and only light of the world. The only resurrection and the life. The way, the truth, the life, and the true vine. So we're going to walk through the last three of these tonight. But I wanted to just say to you that though there were seven I am statements only found in the book of John, there were other times that the I am also spoke. And I want to bring your attention to even Isaiah. In Isaiah 43.10, there's a scripture that says, You are my witnesses, declare the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Another way of declaring that I am. So let's remember those three words. Say, I am he. All right, and let's link that to an old, uh, a New Testament scripture found in our book of John that we've been walking through in John 18. When the soldiers find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and they come to arrest him, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and he asked them, he says, who are you looking for? Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. It's kind of funny because it seems like they didn't even recognize him. But Jesus said to him, said to them, I am he. Three simple words, but straight out of the book of Isaiah. And what happened is that the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus, it was as if a bomb went off right in the middle of them. And Rick Renner describes this scene as if a bomb had gone off and everybody landed flat on their backs because the 
power of Jesus revealing who he was, identifying himself as God, as we saw in Isaiah, as I am he, uh, had unleashed this power as the inherent power of God. Simple three words, but it unleashed the power of who Jesus is as he's revealing himself. So we're going to move on to the fifth I am statement, and it is, I am the resurrection and the life. Death could not hold him. The power of the grave, the power of death could not keep Jesus in the ground. But you know, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He not only performed resurrections, as we're going to see in the scripture, but he was resurrection. And I just have a simple question. How long can the resurrection stay in the grave himself? Not very long, because he is life. So as we look into John here, um, we're going to be witnessing the raising of Lazarus as part of the last great I Am series. And it's going to show the revelation of God's glory and his power. And it's really a foreshadow of what was about to happen. The countdown to the cross has certainly begun. And it's not many days after this that Jesus is actually going to the cross. But here's, here's the irony of the situation. Is that Jesus is the one who gives life. But it is that he gives life by giving up his own life. And he gave up his life on the cross. And that's where the divine exchange took place. He gave his life. He died so that we might live. He took our shame and called us righteous. He took our blame and made us blameless. He became sick for us so that we could be healed. And he calls us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. A further irony is that this seemed to be the last straw that broke the camel's back. After the raising of the dead of Lazarus, Jesus actually sets in motion his own death, as you're going to see. This was where um, they began to plot and to plan and said, he must die. But as we read in John 11, we learned that there was a certain man named Lazarus who was ill. Is it okay if I read a lot of scripture tonight? Okay, I'm not going to apologize for it. We're just going to read straight out of the word of God, all right? Now, a certain man named Lazarus was ill. He was of Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha lived. And we know quite a bit about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, don't we? This Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was now sick. So the sisters sent send a message to Jesus, their, their beloved friend, and saying, Lord, he whom you love is sick. And what does Jesus do when he receives the message? You'd think he'd get right up and say, come on, guys, let's go. We've got we've to get to Bethany. Lazarus is sick. But when Jesus received the message, he said, the sickness is not to end in death. But on the contrary, it is to honor God and to promote his glory that the Son of God may be glorified through or by it. And you know what? Jesus said those very same words um, about the blind man, that God's glory would be shown through this. The miraculous was about to happen. So now Jesus 
loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I think it's really interesting that that gets inserted in here because what Jesus is about to do doesn't seem like a very loving thing. He says he loved Martha and and, um, Mary and Lazarus. They were dear friends. Therefore, even when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he still stayed too more days in the same place where he was. And it seems like Jesus is uncaring. Why didn't he go immediately to the side of his friend that, so that he would not die from this sickness? Can you just imagine what Mary and Martha were doing? Just pacing. When is he going to get here? Why isn't he coming? Come on, Jesus. Hurry. Hurry. And it actually reminds me of the story of Jairus who met Jesus um, and said, come quickly. My daughter is at the point of death. And they knew that this little girl was dying. And so in Jairus' mind, you better hurry, Jesus, because you have to get there before she dies. Otherwise, death is final. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Death could not hold him. And death is not final in the kingdom of God. So then after that interval, after two more days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Jude, again to Judea. And the disciples say to him, uh, are you crazy? My own interpretation. Uh, the Jews only recently were intending to try and stone you, and you are going back there again. Because remember, Jesus had had a run-in, and this was during the time when he said that I'm the good shepherd, you're just a hireling, you're, you're acting like the thief who wants to crawl over the wall and not go through the door. I am the door, I am the only way, I am the only way to uh, eternal life and salvation. And the Pharisees didn't like that much. But um, Jesus said these things, and then he added, our friend Lazarus is at rest and sleeping, but I'm going there that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Now, The disciples answered, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll recover. Just let him sleep. But Jesus was really referring to the fact that Lazarus had actually died. And so since he saw that his disciples didn't really understand, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus knew it. Lazarus had died. See, Jesus' perspective is different than ours. Death is not final to the resurrection and the life. See, but a true positive confession did not deny what the eyes could see. He didn't pretend like Lazarus was not dead. He recognized the situation. Lazarus is dead. Physically, that was a fact. And so Jesus acknowledges it. Therefore, it's not wrong to acknowledge that you've got sickness in your body. You know what faith is not? Faith is not saying, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. Faith is saying, I may have sickness in my body, but in the name of Jesus, I declare over my body, I am the healed of the Lord. And by his stripes, I receive healing by the eye of my faith. I will call things that are unseen into the seen world because I see it with the eye of my faith. And now my body, you have to line up with the word of God that says you are healed and whole in Jesus' name. It's different than a denying and living in denial. Acknowledge it but deny its right to stay. Because in the name of Jesus, he's already conquered that. So I see Jesus doing the same thing here. So faith speaks the truth of the word of God, which transcends and overpowers the physical realm. 
And then Jesus goes on to say, for your sake, he's speaking to disciples, I am glad that I was not there. It will help you to believe, to trust, and rely on me. However, let's go to him. And I you might be scratching your head, you know, if you're a disciple and say, you just told us he's dead. So I guess we're attending a funeral. Then Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us go too that we may die with him. <laughs> this may be Thomas's shining moment because it wasn't long after that that he's been dubbed Doubting Thomas for the all of eternity. But when Jesus arrived, so they all went to Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. See, four days is very significant. Lazarus died, he was wrapped in grave cloth, and he laid in the tomb for four days. It was a commonly held belief that the spirit of a dead person hovered around the grave just in case it re-entered the body and there would be a resurrection. Now, I don't know how many times that actually happened, but what I believe that was was a foreshadowing of the real resurrection of Jesus himself who laid in the grave for three days, right? So had Jesus gone and on the third day called Lazarus out of the tomb, there may have been reason for people to explain it away like it really wasn't a miracle. But so that the glory was going all to God, that the absolute impossible miraculous could be shown... Jesus waited an extra two days. And here he is the fourth day, and everybody said, well, that's it. He's been in the grave four days, and don't you know, he stinks. He's been lying there, he's decomposing. The three-day right to rescind is gone. That chance is already over and done with. So there were many, many people there already morning with Mary and Martha. And Martha heard that Jesus was coming and she went to meet him and while Mary did not come to meet Jesus. Maybe she's a little miffed, I'm not sure. But Martha then said to Jesus, Master, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, that's partially true. Had, she, had he made it before Lazarus had died, I, I'm certain that he would not have had to go through this experience of actually dying. But she said, I like the and. But she says, and even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will grant it to you. She was holding out hope. Jesus was here. The resurrection and the life had arrived on the scene. And Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And she took him to mean that, oh yeah, I know he's going to rise again in the last day in the resurrection. But then Jesus says this. And we can go to our PowerPoint in, in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am myself. Here I am. I am myself, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in, adheres to, trusts in, and relies on me, although he may die, yet he shall live. For those of us who are born again, death is not final. Even though the physical death removes us from the world that we know. As Jesus continues to say, and whoever continues to live and believes in, has faith in, cleaves to, and relies on me shall never actually die at all. And then he asks Martha a very important question. Do you believe this? You know, it's more than once that Jesus would say, be it unto you according to your faith. And people were healed. He told Jairus, 
when they learned that his daughter had died and they didn't make it. Jesus, you stopped and you healed that woman with the issue of bloodhead. You could just kept going. We might have gotten there before she died. But Jesus just looked at him and said, do not be afraid. Only believe. Do you think our believing has to work in cooperation with the power of God? Oh, I so believe that. So Jesus asked her, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I have believed. I do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one that we've been waiting for. And I love that she confessed her faith in who Jesus really was. I think she had a greater revelation that Jesus is the Messiah than even some of Jesus' disciples, as we might see in the next um, I Am. So after that she said this, she went back and called her sister whispering to her, the teacher's close at hand and is asking for you. I think that's funny because that's not what the word says, but she was trying to get Mary to get up. Come on, Jesus, Jesus is here. And when she heard this, Mary sprang up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the same spot where Martha had met. When the Jews who were sitting with her in the house and consoling her had saw how hastily Mary had risen and gone out, they followed her. And here's Mary Poor Mary, she's just brokenhearted. And she came to the place where Jesus was and saw him. She dropped down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the same thing Mary, Martha had said. Apparently they had been talking about this. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews who came with her also sobbing, Jesus was deeply moved. You know, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. But I love that we see the compassion, the heart that Jesus had for people who hurt and who are, who are brokenhearted. And he was deeply moved in spirit. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then here's the... Here's the uh, Shortest verse in the Bible and the easiest one to memorize. What is it? Jesus wept, right? Jesus wept. He weeps with those who weep. Even though he was about to do something absolutely unexplainable but for the power of God. But Jesus does know the pain of real loss. And I said this before. You cannot say this to God or to Jesus. You don't know what I'm going through. Jesus knows. Jesus lived as a man and experienced emotion and pain. So Jesus says he was sighing repeatedly. He approached a tomb, which was a cave, and a boulder laid against it to close the entrance. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, exclaimed, but Lord, by this time he's decaying and he stinks. Or as the King James Version says, he stinketh. For he has been dead how many days? Four days. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus starts with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving can raise the dead. <laughs> because Jesus was thanking God ahead of time by faith, for what was about to happen. And he thanked God the Father that he heard his prayer. And when he had said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, 
come out. And I've heard this preached before, and it's probably true, but had he not said, Lazarus, come out, the whole graveyard might have come out. I don't know. But he said, Lazarus, come out. And so out walked the man who had been dead, his hands and feet wrapped in burial cloths and a burial napkin around his face, which was a customary way that they buried dead people. And Jesus said to them, free him of the burial wrappings and let him go. You know, symbolically, Lazarus might be like many Christians today. The Bible speaks as a, of us passing from death into new life when we become born again. But it is also true that the physical and emotional realm, we bring with us sometimes our grave clothes. We're still wearing some of that residue. We might be born again, but still struggling with depression. It's because your mind and your will and your emotions and your body didn't get saved, but your spirit man's not depressed. Your spirit man doesn't get angry. Your spirit man is 100% on fire, loving God with all of your being. But we bring some of those old habits and attitudes, and we need to be loosed from our grave clothes, don't we? Through the resurrection power of Christ. So that we can live that life, that Zoe life that Jesus came to bring. So what an absolute miracle. Can I just say that I think in our natural mind when a true miracle happens, I think sometimes we have to be aware that the first thing that we might tend to do is try to explain it in the natural. And, and, and maybe even explain it away. I went to India on a mission trip and completely, absolutely lost my voice. And I was supposed to sing the whole time I was there. And on the way over, I got so sick. And all I could do was croak and I was supposed to sing. And within a matter of um, three days of just being on my face before the Lord, and it wasn't for my much praying. It was when I finally just gave up and said, either this stuff works or it doesn't. Jesus, I am willing to receive you right now as my healer. Body, line up with the word of God. And within 30 minutes, I was singing where I could have barely talked. Some people said, well, you were just taking a lot of vitamin C. You know, good for you. You, some, no. Any other time, laryngitis lasted two to three weeks. And within 30 minutes, all I could say is praise God. That was a miracle. I remember sitting over here somewhere when we were in this um, sanctuary back in the good old days when we had multiple, multiple services. I'm sure Pastor remembers those days. And um, we had Andrew Womack come and part of his teaching, he told the testimony of how his son had died. And when he received the news that his son had been killed, I don't know the details, but he said he had um, to travel to a different city and he was supposed to go to the morgue and identify the, the body of his dead son. And I since then heard a few more details on that. Apparently he didn't tell his wife. He got in the car and he said he didn't react. He didn't think about what had just happened, the news that he had been given, he only focused on Jesus, the giver of life. And he said as he drove to that morgue to identify the body of his dead son, he said, I just began to worship God. And I began to just call out who he is. He is the healer. He is the giver of life. Nothing's impossible with God. God loves us. He's a good, good father. Jesus, you paid the price. You said it was finished. And he just began to worship God the whole time he was there. And here's Andrew speaking this in front of us. And he says, so 
we got to the morgue, and I'm going, come on, come on, what happened, what happened? You know, and he's kind of stringing it along. He kind of talks slow. He's from Texas. And he said, what literally happened, he says, we walked into the morgue. They pulled open the drawer, and my son sat up. I just about wanted to shout. I mean, I'm going, what? That's amazing. Glory to God. And I looked around, and I got did you people hear what he just said? It was like we were in this zone that we couldn't receive it because it was beyond our comprehension and understanding. And ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's the power of God. It's unlimited. We've got to take off the limitations on God. You know, there's a scripture that says, with God, nothing is impossible. Do you know who said that? Jesus said it. And Jesus did the impossible time after time after time. Amen? Okay, if I don't hear it, amen, I'm just going to pack up and go because I'm preaching myself happy. All right, amen. All right. So here we experience a miracle. Lazarus is alive. Everybody knew he had been dead and had been dead for four days. And apparently he didn't even stink. So now we have a creative miracle that his body was completely restored. And Lazarus is raised, by the, uh, raised from the dead by the resurrection himself. Jesus says, I myself and the resurrection. Never fear, the resurrection and the life is here. And I want to say to all of you here, never fear, the resurrection and the life is here for you today. If we will walk in that unlimited power that comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus took authority over death and Lazarus came forth. Life comes forth when Jesus is here. There is no life apart from Jesus. Death couldn't beat him. The grave couldn't hold him. Lazarus was wrapped in grave clothes. Jesus was wrapped in grave clothes. But Jesus laid his own grave clothes down and walked out of that tomb. He is alive forevermore. So, you would think this would just be like the pinnacle, the crowning moment of Jesus' ministry, and everybody would believe. But all it did was stir up more hatred from the Pharisees, and this was the turning point. From this point on, Jesus was a dead man walking. His steps to the cross became closer and closer. He now had a price on his head. In fact, they wanted to not only kill Jesus, but they plotted to kill Lazarus because they were, they were gaining way too much attention away from the, the law-abiding Pharisees whom Jesus called empty tombs or sepulchers and a brood of vipers. So the real-life resurrection in the life is Jesus. Okay, let's move on. The next I am... Next, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, we talked a little bit about that three-letter word, the. I am the way, the truth, the life. And there is no other way, no other truth, 
and no other life. But you're going to get the world to tell you there are many ways to heaven and it's intolerant thinking, narrow-mindedness that we would say that there is only one way. And let me just quote Oprah Winfrey for one. I, I had to look this up and I wanted to make sure I said it just the way she said it. And she said, well, I'm a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. I'm a free-thinking Christian who believes that you don't have to believe my way is the only way, but because there's over six billion people on the planet. I'm a Christian, that's my faith, and I'm not asking you to be a Christian. If you want to be one, I can show you how, but it is not required. I have respect for all faiths, all faiths, but what I'm talking about is not faith or religion, I'm talking about spirituality. And ladies and gentlemen, spirituality is a, is a poor substitute for relationship with God. And many people will say, you know, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. But you can be spiritual with the wrong kind of spirits. So that's not, that's not a, a good substitute, like I said, for um, what the way, the truth, and the life is through Jesus. If you leave Jesus out of it, it is a false religion. Amen? And the world wants you to believe that there are many ways to God, but Jesus says, I'm the door. If you don't enter through the door, there's no salvation. But without the door, there was no way to heaven. And so Jesus provided the only way. And what the world wants you to, to forget, and the devil points us away from, is the love of God. What they're leaving out of the equation is there is a way, there is a way, or the way, the truth and life, because of love. And it shows us the depth of God's love. It's not a buffet style of Christianity out there, ladies and gentlemen, no. There is, where we take a little of this, a little of that, and mix it with a lot of what I think and come up with our own truth. No, and that's actually called pantheism. Uh, it's a Hindu belief that God is all and all is God. God is an impersonal force, a consciousness, universal energy, and the ultimate being. And I would say that Oprah holds to a religion called religious pluralism, where the worldview is that no religion is the absolute source of truth. See, the world doesn't like absolutes. You know, they, they don't like being told that this is the truth. They want to come up with their own brand of truth. But the word of God must always be the absolute authority of what truth is, amen? So only God can speak in absolutes, and he does. So, but the world needs a revelation of God's love. But the world is looking at God as intolerant and judgmental because they've removed the love of God. But before Jesus died, like I said, there was no way. I, I love to tell people, my favorite verse is John 3, 17. And they say, don't you mean John 3, 16? You know, for God so loved the world. You know, everybody knows that one. I said, no, I mean John 3, 17. It says, Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. But to save it and to throw us a life ring because he's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So here we are counting down to the cross and Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room and he is now spending the final moments with his disciples and we're going to have to run through this very quickly and the first thing he does one of the last things he wants to do for his disciples is to wash their feet Jesus the servant king showed his final act of servanthood to his own disciples by doing such a menial task as washing their dirty 
feet. But he was a servant leader. He was a servant king. He was born to serve and born to die. And he served all of humanity through his death. I like to say it this way. Love God, serve people. Serve God and love people. That'll keep us out of a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? But see, Jesus knew that he would die soon and that life would never be the same for these disciples. And so he tells them, he says, he starts to explain what's going to happen. He says, you know, I'm going away. Uh, In my father's house are many dwelling places, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you, but you cannot go there and to the place where I'm going, but you know the way. And apparently Jesus believed by this time that they really did know the way. But Thomas, poor Thomas, here he goes again. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Very earthly, limited thinking. And this is where Jesus makes the declaration. He says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by or through me. The name which was widely used for believers in those days was actually the way. So they would actually say things like, um, you know, I am of the way, pointing to these very words that Jesus says, I am the way. And in the way, in the Greek word for the way, it means road, one road, not many roads. There are not many roads that lead to heaven. There is only one, and that's through Jesus, the way. So Jesus is helping his disciples, but they seem to be struggling with a spirit of unbelief. And you know, sometimes I feel like that happens to some Christians. If we try to intellectualize and we only believe what we can understand, we are so limiting who God is. And we have to, again, believe in all of who he is. And if you don't understand it, you do the rest by faith and let the Holy Spirit give you revelation So I think some believers actually struggle with a spirit of unbelief. I know I spent hours with someone, and it just seemed like no matter how much we pray through, pray through, pray through, she still struggles with trusting God. Get to know your God. To know him is to love him, and to know him is to learn to trust him. One two-minute teaching on number seven. (laughs) Jesus said, I am the vine You are the branches, the last I am. It is very fitting that Jesus wraps up the seventh gospel final I am saying by talking about the intimate union with him, sharing of his own life. But we get get relationship here. We've got a vine that he says that he is and that the disciples whom he's talking to are the branches. So a branch who stays connected to the life source, which is the vine, is a healthy, fruit-bearing, close relationship person who understands that when you stay connected to the life source, an automatic um, response to that, an automatic natural process is for you to begin to bear fruit and to be healthy. And we all want to be fruit-bearers. But you don't have to try to be fruit bearers when you're connected 
to the source itself. It becomes a natural flow. That sap flows right through the branches to the very tips. And every part of that branch that stays connected to the vine in that intimate place is a healthy branch. And one more point on that. Later in that same chapter, Jesus says one more thing. He says, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then he says, and my father is a vine dresser. And a vine dresser in those days was not one to come and slash and chop, but one that came and lifted up the branches out of the dirt, cleaned them off, pruned them back so that they would bear more fruit, and in, a, in many ways, lovingly took care of the plant to make sure it was healthy. When believers lose sight of Christ's love, we kind of tend to become like those branches in the dirt. And we need Jesus to come or the vine dresser to come and lift us out and remind us that God is good and he takes care of our own. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for the truth in your word. You are our bread of life. Father, we just rely and depend on you for sustenance and satisfaction. You are our light of the world. You shine light in darkness where light is, darkness has to flee. You are our door. The only way to walk through you. The door that leads to salvation and leads to life like you have it and enjoy it. You are our good shepherd. You take good care of your sheep. You lead us, you guide us, you cause us to lie down in green pastures. You restore our soul. You don't leave us in danger because you're the good shepherd. In fact, you defend us. You lay down your life for us. You are the resurrection and the life. And I pray right now, Father, that anything that has destroyed, been destroyed, or begun to decay, I guess I'm thinking more about dreams that have died. Father, that you just breathe life into those places. Resurrection life into those things that maybe we've given up hope on. Breathe new life there, Father God for you are the resurrection and the life. Breathe new life into our bodies for healing and resuscitation. And we recognize that you are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Because a resounding theme to who you declare that you are is life. Zoe life. Life is God as you enjoy it. And thank you, Jesus, that you came, that we might have a life and have it abundantly. And we just receive that right now. Because your name is above every name. And we give you all the glory and all the praise. And all God's people said, amen and amen.